0: We continue in our series, we're calling Building Blocks, and we're looking at the books, the historical books of the Old Testament, and we come up to Judges, and we're going to be looking at something of the entirety of the book of Judges, but as you've seen from the last weeks, we'll be reading some representative portions, and then we will be uh, referring to various texts throughout uh, the sermon. We'll be looking at Judges chapter 2, verse, uh, beginning in verse 6, because this gives us something of a, a summary text. Uh, that will help introduce the idea the main ideas of the uh, of the book of Joshua I'm sorry the book of judges so we'll be reading uh, judges chapter 2 verses 6 to 23 hear the word of the lord when Joshua dismissed the people the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Keres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers, And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved by pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Back when I was a new associate pastor of the first church, of which I was a pastor in Maryland, uh, a younger man, I was quite young and he was younger than I was, he began in his new faith to read the Bible and he decided what he would do was start at the beginning. And he started reading the book of Genesis. And not long after that, he called me up, somewhat alarmed. And he said, Larry, I'm shocked at what I'm finding in this book. He said, I thought this was the Holy Bible. I expected it to be about holy people. I expected to find uh, lots of good people in this book. And and I'm finding all sorts of of terrible things and and terrible things that, that people did. And I don't think he was even out of Genesis yet. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what his reaction would have been if he had started with the book of Judges. But I, I, I calmed him down, and I explained once again that the Bible is not about good people who don't need to be rescued. It's about bad people who need to be rescued. And so, we should not be surprised if we find throughout the Bible examples of bad people who need to be rescued. And with that, he calmed down, and I hope, uh, continued to read the Scripture, but perhaps with a new perspective. Now, if that's true about any book of the Bible, it is certainly true about the book of Judges. Um, The historical context of the book of Judges, as we saw here, is it continues the story from where we left off last week. We left off last week with the death of Joshua. Now, let's review quickly. Genesis brought us from uh, from the creation up to the death of Joseph. Exodus brought us, after the death of, death of Joseph, up to Mount Sinai with the construction of the temple, the people having come out of Egypt. And then uh, Leviticus gives us instructions about how the, the tabernacle was to be used for worship. And then Numbers picks up the story, and Numbers takes us from Mount Sinai up to the northern part of the the Sinai Peninsula, and has the people of God wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And it takes us right up to the border of the Promised Land. Then last week we saw Joshua, and Joshua begins uh, on the border of the Promised Land and records the conquest of the Promised Land. And so now we're up to the end of Joshua's life, and Joshua dies. And and what we find in chapter 1 of the book of Judges is a, a history of partial success. If you read Joshua, there are clues, as we saw last week, that the conquest wasn't complete. But we saw that there were, there were three main campaigns and 31 kings were conquered and it looked like quite a, quite an amazingly fast a conquest of the land. There were clues that there were still, uh, still peoples to be conquered. But when we see Judges, we see in more detail Uh, those peoples. Now, what it begins, and and hold on to some details, and we'll get back to these at the end. Uh, Chapter 1 tells us that the tribe of Judah, with the help of the tribe of Simeon, they lived in the same territory, they were largely successful in driving out the people of their territory. If you look uh, at verse 19 of chapter 1, for example, uh, it says, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So, not completely successful, but largely successful in driving out the people in his territory. This contrasts with almost all the other tribes. And that's what this chapter 1 makes clear. Let's, let's look at this briefly. Look at, look at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 22, here's a high point. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel and so on, and they were able to conquer Bethel. So that's a high point. But if we keep going, if we look at verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages. Uh, down to verse 29, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Uh, verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So this is, Judah had some success, Joseph had some success, but the rest of the tribes were really having a hard time of finishing the conquest and driving out the people of the land. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in at the end of the life of Joshua, and uh, that's described in the verses we already read, the people continued to follow the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua, and during that whole generation, but now we're prepared for what was going to happen in the book of Judges, and we've already actually been prepared, you remember from last week, that Joshua was pessimistic, he called them to serve the Lord, and then they said, we'll serve the Lord, and then he said, you can't, you can't serve the Lord. And unfortunately judges confirms Joshua's pessimism about the people's inability to serve the Lord and we already read about that that they turned aside after the death of Joshua and that whole generation. And what we have in the main chapter the main chapters of the book so what we've looked at is the historical context chapters 1 and 2 uh, the beginning of chapter 2 and and then we have a downward spiral in chapter 3, actually beginning in chapter 2, all the way to chapter 16. We have a a cycle that repeats itself time after time after time. And it's not only a cycle, but it's a downward cycle. It's a downward spiral. And what we have in chapter 2 is a summary of the the points of this spiral. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 and following. We already read this, but uh, it says here, Point one, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Sometimes there were other gods. The Baals were the local deities, and uh, uh, and the Ashtaroth were the female deities. The Baals were the male deities. The, the Ashtaroth were the female deities. But it, that's the first point. They sinned against the Lord, doing evil what was in His sight. Second point, God sent oppressors, verses 14 and 15. It says they uh, verse 13 they abandoned the Lord verse 14 the anger of the Lord was kindled against them he gave them over to plunderers so they fell into oppression and then we have that they cried out to the Lord in verse 18 and mentions their groaning that he could not he couldn't ignore and then verse 16 deliverance by a judge now when we think of a judge we think of a man or a woman who's sitting on a bench with a a, a black robe and a gavel, and decides judicial cases. Some of these judges did that. Some of them did that, but they were more like strong men, and one woman, we'll get to her in a little bit, but, but strong men, military leaders, uh, local deliverers uh, that God raised up. So we shouldn't think of just judicial, although they had that as some of their, their, uh, their jobs. So, uh, sin, oppression, crying out to the Lord, deliverance by a judge, deliverer, and then uh, oftentimes it says, and the land enjoyed peace for, and it gives a number of years. So we have this this cycle. And then we start again. Sin, oppression, crying out to the Lord, God raising up a deliverer, and then peace in the land. And then we do it again. Uh, sin, oppression, crying out to the Lord, deliverer, and then we have Peace. For a while. And then guess what? Do it again. But not only do it again, but it gets worse and worse. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were what? More corrupt corrupt than their fathers. So this is not only repeating itself, but it's, it's deteriorating. It's getting worse and worse. And we see this pattern very clearly in the first judge. Let's look at chapter three, verse, uh, verse seven. The first judge, Othniel, and follow the points here. See if you can follow the points. And the people of the Israel, of Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Astaroth. Verse 8 Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kushal rishathaim king of Mesopotamia and the people of israel served kushan rishathaim 8 years but when the people of israel cried out to the lord the lord raised up a deliverer for the people of israel who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushon rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushon rishathaim So the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Did you, did you hear all the five points? Very clear. Very clear in this first cycle. And then it goes on, and we have 12 judges. Twelve judges that are recorded, six are called major judges because not because they were necessarily more important, but we know more about them. Uh, we have their whole story or much of their story at least. The other six are called minor judges, some of them are simply mentioned they're mentioned there, and that's why they're called the minor judges now um, there's not merely this repetition but this downward spiral, and we can see it in two in two ways there's the downward spiral because the people were getting more and more wicked as they descended, uh, but also the judges themselves were getting worse and worse. Uh, Othniel. Othniel's got a good pedigree, doesn't he? He was of the family of Caleb. He was either Caleb's younger brother or he, or he was his nephew. and So he was of the tribe of Judah, Just keep that in mind. We keep hearing that. The tribe of Judah, he was of a good family, one of the two faithful spies. It was from Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies. And it says the Lord was with him, and it says that the Lord handed Cushon rishathaim into his hands, and he gave him victory. So, this is a textbook, good judge. But then it gets worse from there. From there, we go to Ehud, is the next one. Ehud was a left-handed man. It makes a point of that. And, sorry to the lefties, but that was considered something of a defect. In fact, he's called a man who was weak in his right hand. That's how they described him. He was weak in his right hand. So they were, they were pointing this out as something of a, a deficit. But he took advantage of his deficit, because normally people were on guard against receiving a knife thrust from the right hand. He took advantage of this so-called defect, by going into the king that was oppressing them and murdering him in cold blood using a dagger and his left hand. Okay, this was not, this was not uh, fighting in warfare. It was, it was a deception, and it was murdering him in cold blood. That's the second one. And he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, the first one, Othniel, was from the tribe of Judah. The second one's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. Keep that in mind. The third one is Deborah. And Deborah was a woman, obviously. Now, Deborah is very noble. There's no smirch on her character. Deborah is fabulous. But it emphasizes, the story emphasizes, that she was a woman. And it emphasizes that as a backhand slap to the man, saying, why is a woman having to do this? Where are you guys? Where are the men? And it's a real slap to the men saying, come on guys, man up. Don't make a woman be your military commander. And so she recruits a man called, uh, Barak. And Barak emphasizes the kind of wimpiness of the men because she says, Barak, you need to go do this. The Lord's calling you to do this. And he says, I'll do it if you go with me. So he's kind of hanging on to, uh, hanging on to Deborah's skirts. Now, the Lord gives a victory to Barak and to, uh, to Deborah. But he gives the victory through another woman who, once again, murders in cold blood somebody whom she had received into her tent. Then we have Gideon. And Gideon's kind of famous because we know a lot about him, but he tested the Lord. The Lord calls him, says, the Lord is with you, and he says, yeah, right. And he says, prove it. And so he puts out his fleece, and then he wasn't convinced with that, the fleece and the dew and the dry ground. He says, well, let's reverse it this time because I want to really be sure. And he tests the Lord three times. And then the Lord gives him a great victory, but after that great victory, he goes back and sheds Israelite blood because of a personal dispute. Uh, And then he becomes wealthy. He asks, they want to make him king, and quite nobly he says, no, I'm not going to be your king, but maybe you could give me some gold. And so they give him gold, and he makes, he makes some sort of object with the gold, and it became an object of worship for all of Israel. So he apparently inadvertently led all Israel into idolatry. Then we have Jephthah. Jephthah was a great warrior, but he was an illegitimate son. And so he was driven out but when they had a time of need they wanted to bring him back because he was kind of a brigand. He had he had a he had a uh he had assembled a group of kind of desperados around him and he was a good warrior and so when they they were in need uh they called him back and he kind of said, "Okay, well, what are you going to give me?" So he was something of an opportunist. It's like, okay, you've driven me out. Are you really gonna make me your leader? Because, you know, I'll take it if you'll give me, promise that I'll be your leader afterward. And so he seemed like an opportunist, but even so, he won a great battle. And then, this shows how little he understood the Lord. He sacrificed his own daughter as a human sacrifice after the battle was over. And, uh, then, he fought a battle against the Israelites. and and shed Israelite blood as well. You see, this is not going well in terms of the character of the judges, is it? And then we have the most famous of all uh, from, uh, from your Sunday school lessons, Samson. And Samson's exploits, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know about Samson's exploits, and maybe even if you didn't, you've heard of Samson, the extraordinarily strong man with the long hair, right? He was to be devoted to the Lord. There was a special vow that we find in number 6, a special vow to the Lord called the Nazarite vow. He is the only one in all of Scripture who is explicitly called a Nazarite. There may have been others. John the Baptist may have been. Samuel may have been. But he was explicitly the only one who was called a Nazarite who was to be devoted to the Lord from his birth during his whole life. But he had a particular attraction for foreign women. Uh, It's never recorded that he ever led any Israelites in battle. In fact, the Israelite armies sort of didn't want to have anything to do with him, and they kind of hung him out to dry to do his own thing. Uh, But even so, even so, uh, he won various battles, single-handedly won various battles against his enemies, the Philistines. But he broke his own Nazarite vows, this one who was supposed to be devoted to the Lord. But he did win some battles. Now, what are we to do with this? So we see, we've gone from Othniel, who was quite a, a reputable guy, and now we're down to Samson whom the Lord used, but he was something of a a practical joker and, and, uh, and, and, and was doing exactly what they were not supposed to do by mixing with foreign women and so on. What are we supposed to do with these judges? What are some of the lessons they have for us? Well, the first one is this. The first one is this. They remind us very, very clearly that salvation is by faith. They remind us that salvation is by faith. And uh, if you recall, we already read about them in Hebrews chapter 11. And they show up, amazingly, some of these guys, uh, and, and, and Deborah, Deborah quite rightly, but uh, the rest of them show up here in, in this hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What more shall I say, the author says, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, the one who's hiding behind Deborah, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And it includes these, even with their defects. What does it say about them? It says that they were men of faith. They were men of faith. And their lives show us very clearly that salvation is by faith. Um, in an Old Testament introduction, the concluding part about, uh, about uh, Judges says this, What a collection of human beings in the book of Judges. Strange heroes they are. A reluctant farmer, a prophetess, a left-handed assassin, an illegitimate bandit, a sex-addicted Nazarite, and others. It is easy at a distance to point out the foibles and failures of the leading characters in this downwardly spiraling story. But lest we get too proud, Paul reminds us, this is what some of you were. With similar mixtures of ignorance, frail obedience, and tangled motives, we, like them, were washed, sanctified, and justified by the grace of God. For all their flaws, we are to learn from their faith. For it was in faith that Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samson conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. In spite of their failures, their faith was not misplaced. They became part of that great cloud of witnesses calling for us to persevere and to fix our eyes on Jesus. We too need a champion to fight our battles for us, one raised up by God and invested with His Spirit in full measure. We too need a leader to secure for us the inheritance that God has promised one who will perfect our faith. So what is the first lesson? It's the lesson of faith. They also should encourage us because they can, they show us that God can use anyone, anyone to accomplish his purposes. Anyone. So when we are tempted to beg off and say, well, I'm not so good at that. I don't feel like that is my strong area. We can go read the book of Judges and see that God can use Jephthah, he can use Samson, he can use Gideon, and he can use you and me as well to accomplish his purposes. They also point us to the key to success. And we saw this, and this is the refrain that we see throughout the book. It says, why did Judah have success? Did you, did you catch that? It says, the Lord was with the men of Judah. And so they were able to have success. And then, why was Joseph able to have success at Bethel? Same refrain. The Lord was with the people of Joseph. And so they drove out the people of Bethel. And then when uh, he raises up judges, it says, the Lord was with the judge. Uh, And then it says to Gideon, the, the angel of the Lord comes and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's the key. That's the key. It's not so much the character of these characters, but rather the power of the Lord who was with them. At the same time, at the same time, we should not ignore their characters because they are a very strong warning to us as well. A very strong warning about the possibility of living a double life of public usefulness in the things of the Lord and personal rebellion against the ways of the Lord. And unfortunately, in the history of the Christian church, and probably in recent memory, we have uh, we have seen too many times those who had apparently publicly fruitful ministries uh, uh, to which people uh, flocked uh, to hear them and to follow them, but then later it comes out that they were living a double life and oftentimes, that double life involved either Samson's weakness, sexual weakness, or it involves Gideon and Jephthah's weakness, and that is abuse of authority and roughness with one's own brothers and sisters. So they are a warning to us. Now, in the New Testament, these two things that were that were divided in some ways in the book of Judges, uh, that is, public fruitfulness and personal fruitfulness, these are brought together. And if there is an emphasis on one over the other, I think we could say that the New Testament emphasizes personal fruitfulness in our characters and in our lives over, over public fruitfulness. Now, it emphasizes both. Let's take a look at these. Let's take a look at, for example... Um, the spirit is given, even as the spirit was given to these judges. The spirit is given so that we might have fruitful ministries and win other people to Christ. We ought not to downplay that or forget that. Uh, in Acts chapter eleven, Acts chapter eleven, it's on page one thousand nineteen, verse twenty-two. It says, "The report of this—that is, of the conversion of of uh, some Hellenistic." Uh, Hellenistic uh, folk in the, the early days of the of the um, of the New Testament of the of the Gospel going forth. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So, how do we see that he was full of the Holy Spirit? Well, one of the ways we see is because a great many people were added to the Lord. So, we should expect this. In a faithful ministry of the Gospel, there should be people being added to the Lord, and that is one effect of a life full of the Holy Spirit. However, it says that he was a good man. It talks about his character, and that's the other way in which we see that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was a man of godly character. And so it's not just fruitfulness in ministry, it's fruitfulness in godly character. What are the fruit, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Paul says in Galatians 5, for the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know that somebody has the Holy Spirit? Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we tend to be impressed with, with ministries that get public acclaim. And some of those ministries are quite excellent and deserve recognition. However, we also need to, to, to ask ourselves, is this a ministry that is full of the Spirit? Is it characterized by love, by, by joy, by patience, by faithfulness, by gentleness, by goodness? by self-control in the lives of the people that are involved therein. So these these are some of the lessons that these judges hold for us in the light of the New Testament. But there is one major lesson, and this is, if we could say, the point of the book of Judges, and we don't get to it until we get to the last chapters. There's this historic epilogue in chapters 17 to 25, and it is a description of the, the people of Israel calling, falling into moral and political chaos. So we have this downward spiral for some ten chapters, and then we get to these last two stories. And these stories are hard to read. Uh, they, uh, they are very disturbing stories. The first one is about a mercenary Levite. Now, the Levites were the priestly group. And it's a mercenary Levite. And he became an idolatrous priest, first for a family, who, just, who said they would pay him to do it. And then a better offer came along. The whole clan of Dan came along and says, Hey, we can offer you a better offer. We can pay you more, and you can be a priest for a whole tribe rather than just for a family. So he abandons his patron Steals the gods, the idols that he used in his idolatrous worship from the family, and takes them with him and goes along with the tribe. So there's, there's moral and religious chaos here. It's completely confused. And then the second one is even harder to read. It's a man who had a concubine, a lover. It wasn't his wife. And uh, it says that she fled from him, and we'll soon see why she might have fled from him, but she fled from him, and she went back to her home in Bethlehem of Judah. Bethlehem of Judah. Well, he goes to recover her. And he goes, he's a Levite also from Ephraim, he goes, and he goes to his father-in-law, and the father-in-law receives him very well, and the father-in-law is trying to restore this relationship and he he receives them very hospitably. But then they go on their way to return to their own village, and uh, they spend the night in Gibeah of Benjamin. So they go from Bethlehem of what? Judah. Judah and now they go to Gibeah of Benjamin. And here he by- bypassed Je- uh, Jebus, or Jerusalem, because he said... Those are not believers, those are not Israelites, and, and they won't receive me well. So he goes to an Israelite town, Gibeah, of Benjamin. And nobody received him. Finally, a man, an older man, receives him. And that was, that was, that was hospitality in those days. You had to receive people who were traveling like that. That was normal. Nobody received him. Finally, an old man receives him into his home. But then the men of the city, the men of the city come and they say send out this visitor who's with you because we want to violate him and the solution the solution uh, that the, the the older man suggests is giving instead his virgin daughters and the concubine for these men to abuse and they say no but we want the man we want this visitor whom you have with you and so what the levite does is he pushes out his concubine and they abuse her all night In the morning, he sees her lying on the, on the steps and says, get up, let's go, but she can't get up because she's dead. Terrible, terrible, right? And then he, he takes her body, cuts it into 12 pieces, sends these pieces out to the tribes of Israel, and says, this was done. In Gibeah of Benjamin, what are we going to do? And all the tribes rise up and say, we will demand that they hand over those men to us. But Gibeah says, we're not going to do that. We're not going to hand them over. And so, 11 tribes go to warfare against Benjamin. And at first they're repulsed, but then they're able to attack, and they're able to almost, to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. And they realize that they have wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. There are only 600 men left. And they say, oh no, what have we done? We have almost erased, we've almost erased one of the 12 tribes. What can we do? And they made a vow. They said, anybody who gives his daughter to a Benjamite will be accursed. And so they said, well, we can't. We we can't give our daughters, so how can they multiply? How can this tribe be restored? So they come up with, with two stratagems. The first one is this. They took a roll call, and they said, who didn't join us in the battle? Because everyone was supposed to join in the battle, and they find a town that didn't send anybody. And so they go to that town, an Israelite town, their own brothers, and they wipe out the town except for 400 virgins. And they say, well, okay, we have 400 of the 600 we need. And then they say, well, we're still missing 200 women. Where can we get these? And they say, oh, there's a festival. And in this festival, the virgin daughters go out and dance. And so they tell, tell the 200, they say, lie in wait. And when you see one that you like, go and abduct her for yourself. Yeah, this is, this is Israel. I said this was troubling, didn't I? I said this was troubling. And this is very distressing. This is, this has fallen into, to, to chaos that, that is not even known among many of the pagan nations. And you ask, why is this recorded? But this is just the point. The point is found in a refrain. In a refrain that occurs over and over in this last section. Chapter 17, verse 6, is the first time this refrain appears. And it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. says, in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then chapter 21, 25. The very last verse of this book. It says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's the point of the book? What do we need? A king. That's the point of the book. You see what happens when there's no king? That's the point of the book. It's arguing that they needed a king. But there's something, and here I want you to bring up these little sticky notes I said to put in your mind. It's not arguing for just any king. It's arguing for a king from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Benjamin. How do we know that? Because all through the book, there are these little contrasts between Judah, who was able to drive out the people, and Benjamin, who was not. The book starts with the question, Lord, who should go up first against our enemies? And the Lord answers, Judah shall go up first. And here we have this final conflict. This final conflict uh, between all the tribes and Benjamin. And we find that the the Ephraimite, looking for his concubine, was treated well in what city? Bethlehem of Judah. And he was treated badly in what city? Gibeah of Benjamin. Let me ask you, from what city was David? Bethlehem in Judea, or in Judah. From what city was King Saul? He was from Gibeah. Of Benjamin. You see, this is something of a political tract for the times because this was written after the establishment of David as king. And it's arguing against the illegitimate kingship of the first king, Saul, who was from where? Gibeah of Benjamin, and in favor of King David, who was from Bethlehem of Judea. So the argument is not simply. We need a king. We don't need just any king. We need a king from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Benjamin. And so, we turn a few pages and we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. And we find that God answered the cry. God provided them, the king from the tribe of Judah. And his name was David. And he's described as a man... After God's own heart, the cry of judges is answered. And now the people have a king, a king from the tribe of Judah. But one day, when the kings go out to war, David stayed home. This king from the tribe of Judah. He stayed home and he saw a woman, a beautiful woman, bathing. And he sent for her. And then he had her husband murdered to try to cover up the pregnancy. And later on in his pride, he had the tribes numbered. He had the soldiers numbered something that he was told not to do. And chaos fell into David's family. How disappointing, isn't it? We thought we had the answer, didn't we? We thought we had the answer to the cry of judges. We need a king. We need a king from the tribe of Judah. And finally we get that king in King David and we find out that he has warts, that he has feet of clay as well. And so we keep looking. Maybe David's son would be the answer, also from the tribe of Judah, the wisest man in the world, King Solomon. And then we find that Solomon had the same problem that Samson had with the foreign women and the foreign gods. And so we keep looking and looking and looking. And we go through 20 monarchs in the southern kingdom of Judah and 20 monarchs in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we keep looking and looking and looking. And this cry that was all through the book of Judges, the end of the book of Judges, keeps ringing in our ears, we need a king, we need a king, we need a king. And we end... We end the Old Testament. And still, the right king has not arrived. We have to turn to the very first verses of the New Testament where we read this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Finally, in Him is the cry of judges answered. We need a king, not just a Davidic king, not just a Judean king. We need a divine king, one who does not, like we do, have feet of clay, one who is not, like we are, subject to temptation and weakness and sin and rebellion and idolatry. We need a king. And my friends, praise be to God. We have that king. God has sent us that king. And when that king arrived finally in answer to this cry all through the Old Testament, what did we do to Him? We crucified Him. But God raised Him from the dead and seated Him on an eternal throne. And what is He doing now? He's doing what these, these pale shadows in the Old Testament were doing but He's doing it finally and definitively. He is conquering nations. As the gospel goes forth of the message of His death and of His resurrection, He goes forth to all the nations, conquering and to conquer, bringing those who will bow the knee, bringing those who will believe in Him under His sovereign and loving reign. The kingdom is open, my friends. Will you come in? Will you come in? King Jesus invites you. King Jesus who died. King Jesus who rose. King Jesus who reigns. King Jesus invites you to come and to enter through faith in Him. We need a King, Judges says. We have a King. And His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we are disturbed when we read this book. But we realise in this book that we see ourselves. We see in these weak men, we see our own weakness, as we too are afflicted by pettiness and jealousy and selfishness and lust and idolatry. And we hear their cry at the end, we need a king. We thank you, O God, that the king has come. Jesus has come. And He's come for people like them and He's come for people like us. And so we, by faith, bow the knee to Christ. We bow the knee in saying, by saying, You are our King. Reign over us. And may we join in the battle going forth that the nations might hear, the warring nations might hear that there is a King, a King of Peace, a Prince of Peace who reigns in love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.